0: Our Father in Heaven, we cannot but stand in all of you. We thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is the living one who died and came to life. Jesus is Almighty Lord, who was and is to come. And we thank you, Father, that our reason, Lord, is now in our midst. He holds the churches, his churches in his right hand, He walks amongst us. He knows each one of us very well. And Father, we thank you for the promises that he has given to us in the book of Revelation. We thank you that he promises that those who stand firm to the very end, he will grant to eat the tree of life. Those who stand to the very end, will not be hurt by the second death. And those who stand to the very end will be given the authority over the nations and he will rule with an iron rod. And we thank you, Father, that you are the one who keeps us to the very end, for you are our faithful God. You who began the good work in us will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we look forward to that glorious day, we ask that your Spirit will do his work amongst us in in your church today. will strengthen us in our faith to bring glory and honor to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation, we'll be looking at it uh, over the next four months indeed. It's a book that has made some afraid. Some excited, and some just remain silent and indifferent. Over the years, I think each of us has been exposed to different ideas related to Revelation. Some grew up with the left-behind series. Some grew up aware of high-profile murder cases committed in the name of Revelation, like the Manson murder in the late 60s in California. And most of us have watched a lot of Hollywood movies related to to Revelation like Bruce Willis' Armageddon, or Anthony Hopkins' Red Dragon, and many more. Over the next four months, we will be looking at the book of Revelation itself to learn for ourselves what Revelation is really all about. We'll read it for ourselves. This morning, at the beginning of this long journey, I want to begin by giving you some indications of what you and I can expect from this journey. So just five brief points. Firstly, you need to expect to learn a new language. Most of us are very familiar and comfortable with reading and reflecting on parts of the Bible that is written in the form of narrative or in the form of letters. We like them, isn't it? And we are very good at it. But not many of us that I know, you might prove me wrong, are used to reflecting our Christian life, day-to-day living, in terms of a ten-horned, seven-headed beast. Why? At one level, this is really a language problem. For we are simply not familiar with this visual, symbolic, apocalyptic language that John is using. But once we are aware and we start to learn this language, any Christian can read and understand this book. Just like any other books in the Bible. And related to the, to the issue of language is also revelation extensive use of the Old Testament language. We don't get a lot of direct quotations in Revelation, but we get a lot of Old Testament images and ideas in this book. So revelation, in a nutshell, is not inherently difficult, if that's what you think it is. It is just unfamiliar. So the good news is, spending four months over this book, we get time to pick up the language. Just like you want to learn Japanese, you go to Japan, you learn it. So I hope that's an encouragement for you. Okay? Secondly, expect to hear what you have already been hearing, if you have been coming to SMAC. Expect to hear things that you have already heard before. Revelation is essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ in a different packaging. At the heart of Revelation is John skillfully using apocalyptic language to retell the central paradox of the gospel. That is, the victory of God was the humiliation and death of his son. The lion assumes the meekness of the lamb and dies in order to overcome. And that sounds familiar to all of us who have been listening to the gospel, isn't it? Thirdly, In Revelation, you have to expect to choose sides. You see, the key player in Revelation is a slaughtered lamb who conquers the forces of evil and death through humility, selflessness, and sacrifice. So Revelation paints the lamb's death as a cosmic battle against the evil. It paints for us a war picture. The battle lines are drawn very clearly in Revelation between the forces of good, and the forces of evil. So as a reader, you and I cannot remain neutral for very long as we read Revelation. The stakes are very high. It concerns the destiny of this universe and therefore concerns your destiny and my destiny. And therefore, as we read it, you find yourself being forced to choose sides. And Revelation will be very confrontational about that. Fourthly, expect to see the world completely differently. What Revelation does is that it reveals to us God's vantage point of this world that we engage in every day, regardless of what we do and where we are. It puts it against a transcendent reality of what God has done and continues to do in the Gospel. Revelation doesn't bring us away from the here and now and bring us somewhere else. It remains us here, but it reframes our perspective. It gives us glasses of how we interpret and understand our present experience. So inevitably, we will have to reshape our lifestyle and our life goals in light of what we now learn is the reality, the complete reality of life that Revelation will show us. Fifthly and lastly, do expect to be strengthened in your faith to stand firm as Christians. Revelation will open our eyes to see our personal and our local church struggle in light of a larger spiritual struggle, spiritual battle, that's happening out there, which God has won and is battling in Christ, it is a bit like fighting guerrilla warfare. If you are in the village alone by yourself and you are fighting the few guerrillas are out there, you find it hard. But when you receive a news that the opposition and the enemy's headquarters is shot down, they are dead. The enemies are retreating you have more motivation, and you know how to fight better. Because you know the war is gone, and now you're in a sure-win battle. That's what Revelation would do. Well, with that extended uh, introduction, let us begin with Revelation chapter 1. Take a look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Reading from verse 1 to verse 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ Jesus, even to all that he saw. The very first word in this book, did you notice? What is that? It sets out to inform us clearly what this book is about. So, you must pay attention to what that word is. It is this the word revelation. It is a revelation. It makes it very clear. It comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. The word simply means uncovering or unveiling something that was once hidden. And that is why the English it has it translated revelation, because the purpose of this book is to reveal. And that contradicts many teachers who have been teaching Revelation as if it is a book that is mysterious and cryptic and only certain people can understand, isn't it? It is not. It is written by God to reveal. Reveal to us so that we can know, so that we can understand. Now, what do we need for something that is hidden to be revealed? Well, we need a revealer. Someone to reveal it to us. So who is the one that is revealing here in Revelation? Verse 1 says, this is a revelation of, that is, this is a revelation belonging to Jesus Christ, which God gave him, God gave him to show his servants, he made it known by sending his angel to John. That is, God gave this revelation to Jesus to possess, and in turn, Jesus made it known through an angel to John who in turn shows it to his readers, you and me. So God is the one who is ultimately revealing here. God of the universe is revealing something to you and me through this book. And we can expect him to be very clear, isn't it? For he's God. And what is the content of this revelation? What is he revealing? Well, it concerns the things that must soon take place. It concerns the things that must soon take place, right? Now, which of these words here do you think is the emphasis? Most revelation experts or enthusiasts would say that it is the word soon. It is the things that must soon take place. So they will try to match events and characters in revelation with events and characters of their time. Soon for you and me is 2016. And we'll find out what other things that must soon take place, according to the book of Revelation. But if you live in the 18th century, your soon will be different. So I think the emphasis is not on soon, the emphasis is on must. Revelation reveals to us things that must soon take place. That is, God is saying here, in Jesus, his long prophesied Messiah has come. He has died for the sins of the world. He has been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he's now seated on God's right hand. Well, now that all that has happened, what are the things that must next take place? What is next in God's salvation program? That is, in this short period between Jesus' ascension and his return, what are the kind of things that believers like you and me can expect to take place? How will this period look like? Okay. Well, now that we know what this book is, what it is about, and who is it from, in verse 3, John makes a logical conclusion for us of what we should do with such a book. Verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Well, we are to read it aloud, that is to teach it and to proclaim it. We are to listen to it, but not just to listen, but to take it to heart and to act upon it. And as a result, we will find blessing, that is, we will find happiness. But the question is why? Why would anyone find happiness and blessing simply by reading and listening to this book? How could that be? Well, we have just seen the answer to it earlier, what this book is about. In this book, God is revealing how world history, the history that you and I are still living in, how world history will be played out as a result of what he has already done on the cross. He's showing the readers how that one defining moment in history, the cross of Christ, when his son died, the humiliating death on the cross, has shaped and will shape the rest of history. So blessed are you who know this and take it seriously. Those of us who gamble or used to gamble in soccer will understand this. Imagine knowing the results of the soccer match before it begins. You are sure to win. But just that in Revelation, your bet is not a few dollars. Your bet is your whole life. Now that you know how the result is going to be, you can throw in your whole life and bet your whole life on it because you know the winning side already. Verse 4 continues then to tell us more about this revelation from God. To John, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. We see here that this revelation eventually took the final form of a letter, a letter written by John to the seven churches in Asia. We know that there are more than seven churches in that part of the world during that time, more than ten in fact, so why seven? Well, the expression seven here is rather a way of describing the total number of churches that are there, a complete number of churches, referring to all of them. So the letter that we're reading in Revelation is rather a circular, general letter that's being circulated around all the churches to all the Christian groups who are being persecuted and are now struggling in their faith. Yeah? And then in verse 4 to 8, God, uh, John gave a Christian there a theologically rich greeting. It is as if John is saying to them, Hey guys, this is what you need to understand before you even read the rest of the letter. For this is the core, this is the foundation of the letter. This is what the entire of revelation is based on. In verse, so, what is it? What is this foundation? Well, in a nutshell, it is the gospel. Verse 5, John simply double-clicked on the person and the work of Jesus, and then he raised into telling us more and more about him. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, And from Jesus Christ, then he can't stop telling you about Jesus, and he tells you more. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and who has freed us, freed us from our sins, how? By his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his Father and God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Well, the heart of the Christian gospel is this. Through the life and death of Jesus, believers are accounted by God to be free. Free from guilt of sin and accepted by Father as His children. Believers can now have access to the Father through the blood of Christ. We are the priests. Revelation is all about the loving God gathering for Himself a people, a kingdom of Christ, which we are now part of. And then verse 7 goes on to explain further how God achieves that. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Well, when you read this, you might not know what is the picture about. Some of us do, some of us don't. Well, this picture is really from the Old Testament. Again, I say that it is your unfamiliarity with the languages that you do not know what this is about. These are Old Testament images from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. So if you can take that down, you can read Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 back home and read Revelation again and that will make sense. Daniel 7 depicts for us a conquering king and a judge. Zechariah 12 depicts for us one who is pierced to death. John is saying both of these pictures depicts the same person. That is, in Jesus, God's promise, conquering king, who conquers through being pierced, has arrived. So John wants his readers to understand that something dramatic of unparalleled cosmic significance has happened in human history. Jesus Christ has come and bore witness to God. He became the firstborn from the dead. That is, God vindicated and resurrected him from the the dead. And Christ, whom they saw, suffered, and killed, and was crucified, has now become the ruling king of the universe. He is now the big boss of the universe. It is a bit like you working in a company, and all of a sudden in the morning you receive an announcement, maybe through a letter or maybe through the PA system. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now a change of management from this morning onwards. So and so is no longer the boss. The next boss is X and X. From now onwards, he is your boss. But the moment that we walk out of this hall, it doesn't seem like that, isn't it? It doesn't look like that at all. It doesn't look like Jesus is the boss. It doesn't look like he's the big boss of the universe. It doesn't even look like he's the boss of Malaysia. Not at all. But when Jesus the lamb is being revealed as the lion, Revelation says, the tribes of the earth will wail. The day when the lion, when the lamb become, not become, revealed as the lion, the tribes of the earth will all wail. And that day will come because the lamb has already become the lion. He has conquered death. But just can't be seen now. Now, in verse 9 to 20, In verse 9 to 20, John reports further about the revelation that he receives. We learn that John is now on an island. And this island is called Patmos and it's very likely a prison island. He's there because, like all the Christians that he was writing to, he's being persecuted for the faith. Verse 9 says he was on Patmos, on the account of teaching the will of God. And for testifying about Jesus, there's a cost to him telling people about Jesus, that he rules. He's in prison for it. And then from verse 12 onwards, Jesus te- John tells us of the vision that he saw. Verse 12, take a look. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the Lamb's hands, one likeness Son of Man. Well, who who did John see? Basically, John saw Jesus. The Son of Man is Jesus. He's the Son of Man that was prophesied in Daniel 7 and was fulfilled by Jesus when he came. And then what happened to John when he saw Jesus? Verse 17 when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. Are you surprised by that? Why did John fall to his feet as though dead when he saw Jesus? Well, take a look at the vision for ourselves. What did he see? In verse 13 he says, in the midst of the lamb stands one like the son of man, clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And his hairs of his head were white with wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like a sun shining in full strength. Basically, John was overwhelmed by the majesty of this figure, sure majesty of this figure. Confronted with the glorious Jesus, John realized that there is a big gap, a big gulf between himself and the reigning Christ. He despaired at his own sinfulness. He saw his unworthiness before the Lord of the universe, the reigning King. And how did Jesus respond to him as he fell, fell, uh, fell face down? Verse seventeen says Be he said, And he laid his right hand, that is Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not I am the first and the last and the living one. I die and behold I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John was comforted and restored. Because he was reminded that the holy and glorious and seemingly unapproachable Jesus who loves him is one who loves him and is one who died for him. He has conquered sin and death on John's behalf. And now John can stand before this glorious lion because he has been justified by the lamb. Friends, the big picture of chapter 1 is this. The God, God, the only God of the universe who is sovereign over all of history, completely all of history, because he's the Alpha, that is, he was before time, and he was Omega, which was, he was beyond time. He is now moving history according to a program. And that program centers around Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death. So I think the challenge for us would be, are we aware of this program? And are we in line with this program? Because we like it or not, that is the good program that God has set in place in Jesus Christ. Whether you believe or don't believe in this program, this is the program that God will works out in history. But the good news is that in Revelation, those who stick to this program, despite being persecuted, despite being slandered, will be the one who holds it to the end and will receive the crown of glory that we'll see in the letters. So in chapter 2 and 3, we see a collection of letters. We won't stay here for too long. These are comfort zones. These are personal letters from Jesus himself. Uh, They are written to real churches in the first century. But as I mentioned earlier, the seven churches symbolizes all churches that ever existed in the past and will ever exist. So as such, these words of Jesus of rebuke and of warning, his words of encouragement and of promises, are addressed to all churches, including churches today, including us. So, it needs to be stressed that these letters shows us Jesus' diagnosis of his church. That is, they show us the church as the way that Jesus sees it. Not the way that the world sees the church, not the way that I see the church, not the way that you see the church, not the way that the church sees the church, but the way that Jesus sees the church. This is the most honest and the most blatant diagnosis and the most accurate diagnosis we can ever get. I'll go through these, churches, uh, these letters very broadly now, for we have went through each of them in detail in one sermon each week, last week. So I'll recommend those sermons to you. They're still available online for those of you who were not with us last year. Well, chapter 2, verse 1, Church in Ephesus. This is a church of zeal without love. A church of zeal without love. Jesus commended them for many things, for their hard work and patience, endurance, for their rejection of evil and for false, rejection of falsehood, And they hate what Jesus hates. This is a church that is very zealous for the truth. But Jesus has one single but very damaging charge against them. And that one thing is verse 4. They have abandoned their first love. They have abandoned their first love. That is, they have abandoned the gospel love of Jesus for sinners around them. And Jesus warned them to repent, or their lampstand will be removed from them. That is, they will no longer be regarded as a church in his eyes. For a church who fights for truth without love is not God's church. So how about our, us in SMAC? Are we such a church? A church that is zealous for the truth, but have lost our first love. Chapter 2, verse 8, is a letter to the church in Smyrna. Jesus has nothing but comfort and encouragement for them who is suffering here. Jesus says he knows their tribulation and poverty and aware of the slanders that have been against them because they stand firm as Christians. And he prepares them for further persecution to come. He reminds them to stay faithful, faithful even unto death. And they can do that because Jesus died and came back to life. And so they can be fearless in facing suffering and death and continue preaching the gospel. How about us in SMAC? Is SMAC a fearless church? Or are we fearful of slander and persecutions because of our faith? Chapter 12, yeah, chapter 2, verse 12, the church in Pagamon. This is a church that stands strong against the world, but is very weak within and is compromised within. Jesus commanded them for holding fast to Jesus in the midst of persecution, even when one of them was actually martyred, was killed for the faith. They still stand firm. So, this is a church that is very strong against the outside world. But Jesus charged them for their tolerance. Their tolerance of false teaching within the church. They tolerate sexual immorality within the church. And Jesus wants them to repent, or he will come and wage war against them. Again, how are we doing in SMAC with regard to this? Do we stand strong against the unbelievers as a church, united by compromise within? within ourselves? We tolerate false teaching, we tolerate adultery and we tolerate immorality within us? Chapter 2, verse 18, the church in Thyatira. This church is, the, is worse than Pagamum and in fact, the worst of all. You can see how the seven churches go, getting from bad to worse. But with Pagamum, with here, Thyatira, we have basically hit the rock bottom. It's going to go up from here. Jesus, Jesus commanded them for their patience, endurance, for their works, for their love, for their faith, and for their service. But Jesus gave them a very, very heavy charge. He charged them again for f- tolerating false teaching. They were, sedu- they were seduced by Zezebel, and he warned them to repent, or he will come and strike them down, all those who follow her false teachings." But amidst judgment, Jesus encourages those within this corrupted church who hold fast, that they are to hold fast to the very end and they will be rewarded to rule with Christ. What matters most, you see, is whether you hold fast to Christ in the end. Regardless of where you are, what matters most is that we hold fast to Christ. Regardless of what church or what denomination you are in, The question is, are we those who hold fast to Christ? So are we in smack, regardless of what denominations we are in, regardless of what situation denominations we are in, are we holding fast to Christ, to the gospel? The church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, Sardis has a reputation of being alive, but in fact it is dead. It is well, perhaps it's well spoken of by the world. The world sees this church as being very alive and even being regarded by the other churches around of being very alive. But in the eyes of Jesus, it's very different. They are dead. Jesus charged them to wake up. Wake up. Though they would, they would have thought of themselves as being alive, they wouldn't thought of themselves that they need to wake up, but they are. Because whatever that they are doing actively that makes them think that they are alive, it is not God's work at all. It is nothing to do with the gospel that they have received at the beginning. Nothing to do with what they have heard from the beginning. So the question for us in SMAC is the same. Is SMAC actively doing God's work? We can be active But are we actively doing God's work? Are we actively proclaiming the gospel that we had received from the beginning? Or are we doing actively our own work? If we are, we need to wake up. Chapter 3, verse 7, the church in Philadelphia. Church in Philadelphia has little power, very little power, and it's very apparent to everyone. That's how they look from the outside, but Jesus commanded them this. Jesus commanded them, for they have kept His word, and they have not denied His name. And Jesus promised them that because they have kept His word, He will keep them. So, smack, are we holding fast to the word of Christ? The emphasis here, I think, is the word. Of Christ. Do we treasure God's word? Do we take it to heart? Are we ashamed of Him? Are we ashamed of His word? Are we ashamed of Him before the world? Or do we fearlessly testify about Him and about His word? If we are not, then we need to heed the warning to Philadelphia. The last church, the church in Laodicea, 314. Let me read that. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the of the Amen, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works; you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would that you either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, "I am rich; I have prospered." I need nothing but realizing that you not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and self to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Laodicea, Jesus will spit them out of his mouth. They were charged for being neither hot nor cold. I think that means that they are no longer distinct as disciples of Jesus. They are just comfortable in their riches and prosperity. They forgot their poor spiritual condition. They were self-sufficient. They were mediocre disciples of Jesus. So Jesus warned them that he is standing at the door and asked them to be zealous and repent quick so for us in smack, Jesus promised that he will come and have fellowship with us, and that's the promise that he gave to the Laodiceans. We are to be zealous in the gospel, for the gospel. We are asked to be zealous disciples, not nominal Christians. If we are, heed the knocking of Jesus and wake up. Be zealous and repent. Let me end with a story that I read. About the book of Revelation. They were in a Bible college, a group of students, Bible college students, they were playing basketballs. And after they finished, they walked down the aisles and they saw a janitor cleaning. And this janitor was reading the Bible. And they went over to help this janitor and asked, Hey, what are you reading from the Bible? And janitor says, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And they thought to themselves, Whoa, let me let us go and help this poor soul to understand Revelation. So they went there and asked, hey, wow, you are reading Revelation. Uh, Do you understand Revelation? And the janitor answered, yeah, it's a simple message, isn't it? So why is it? The message is, Jesus is going to win. God wins, and Jesus is going to win. That's basically what chapter 1 and 2 tells us about what the whole book of Revelation is about. Jesus has won, and he's going to win. We are on the winning side. The warnings that he gave us and the encouragements that he gave us and the rebukes that he gave us in the book of Revelations are there to strengthen the church who is on the winning side. Okay? Let me read to you from Revelation 11, which in my opinion at this stage of studying Revelation is what the whole of Revelation is about. Chapter 11, verse 15, and I'll end there. I think this verse summarizes for us what Revelation is. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Believe in that. Believe in that. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. And that is a reality that extends from the day that Jesus Christ rose again up to this very day, he is still the Lord who will rule over the earth. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll say the prayer of confession together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you open your word, your living word to us. We thank you for the promise of our Lord Jesus that we see in Revelation, that the one who conquers, he will grant to him to sit with him on his throne, for he has conquered and has sat down with his father on his throne. And we thank you, Father, that in Christ we are those who have conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony of him. We thank you, Father, that we now have a king, the worthy lamb, who was slain, but now have received power and glory and blessing forever and ever. Father, we come before you this morning as those who have been corrected and rebuilt by your word, and so we come before you humbly now with this prayer of confession, knowing that it is not by our own works that we are saved, but by the blood of the Lamb. We can can come before you uh, honestly uh, with our sins, knowing that Christ has died for us. So together, Father, as a church, we pray to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own ways and broken your laws. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. And by your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you more and more through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Remember this gospel, my friends. Romans 5 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now that we, have, we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we, are, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation.